Listenable with Mike Gerard. We've all seen the stories, if you have a Facebook account, that is. One of our own trusty Facebook friends, someone who we know quite well, posts a feel-good story about a couple in their 90s dancing the jitterbug. Or maybe it's an elderly lady trying to get 10 bucks from a bank teller and not an ATM. Or maybe it's just a pic of two guys putting in a window air conditioner the wrong way. These seemingly innocuous posts lift us up briefly and make us smile, and they warm our increasingly cold and jaded hearts. So what's wrong with them? Well, we're going to find out. It's February 1st. This podcast topic of media bias and the country divided has kind of died on the vine for me in the wake of the 2020 election. Because in the beginning, way back in the early days of the lockdown, it was fun to look for the media bias in various stories. But then, as the year dragged on and on, and the election loomed ever closer, the media bias just became so obvious. There was simply no need for my clever detective work to root it out. It was there for all to see. And then, the ennui set in. I shunned the news and avoided it like that frozen bag of kale in my freezer. No one wants you. It's obvious. You're just a bitter bag of lies. So, I've been trying to figure out for months now how to keep this topic alive, or if that's even possible. I'm back to doing the daily media roundup, but it's a little different. I no longer look for bias because I don't have to. It's all right there, wrapped up for me with a little blue or red ribbon on top. Or now... There's a gold ribbon. That's right. Keep your eyes peeled because there's a gold wave coming. But anyways, so what's changed? Well, now it's about social media. I've been trying to figure out my position on this. Is it the ultimate expression of unfettered free speech? Or is it just another example of a highly manipulated media source? Well, I'm working on that. And this, I guess, is my first foray into it. So this morning... I'm looking at my own social media, where I've said before that I have friends from all over the spectrum. And one of my friends reposted a rather innocuous story today about a local man who was stopped by the police for tinted windows, and when the cop noticed that the three-year-old in the back seat wasn't in a car seat, the cop, instead of writing the driver two tickets, takes him to the store to buy him a car seat. I mean, what a nice story. It restores my faith in... Okay... Yeah, it doesn't, because I have this superpower sensing the nefarious. So let's jump right in and see what we see. So my first clue to the suspect nature of this story is the format. I've seen this so many times before. It has to do with the look of the post. There's the eye-catching picture and the wall of badly formatted text. These are typically very long reads, so this alone catches my eye. Now, this story actually has the driver's name, the city he's from, and it claims that it's from his own Facebook page. So, this should be easy enough to find. And, yep, there we go. Here's a story from uh, a CBS affiliate news station, and the headline is, Viral Facebook Posts Celebrating Winston-Salem Police Officers' Good Deeds Are False, Police Said. Aha! And the article is talking about our seatless child as well as another story where a cop helps an injured dog. Huh. 
All right, this is actually a really good article, and I'm going to give them a shout-out. This is from WFMY, a CBS affiliate from Greensboro, North Carolina, and they cover the Winston-Salem area. Okay, and it goes on to say that, yeah, these stories are true, but they didn't happen recently, and they didn't happen in North Carolina. So what the heck? Well, there's a video here of this story, and again, kudos to WFMY. Their reporter interviews a professor from a local college, and this professor claims that posts like this are designed to bait the reader into trusting the posting source, and because they're appealing stories, people then repost them. But the danger, he says, is that the reader may then be susceptible to future and potentially more impactful stories that they might then also share. And the story concludes with an interesting twist. The original poster of these two feel-good pieces was from a Facebook page that claimed to be breaking local news in the Winston-Salem, North Carolina area. And when WFMY reached out to them, they got a response in Russian. Oh, man, this is getting good. Uh, Okay, settle down, Spaz. I mean, what do we really have here? Well, We have a theory, of course, that a Facebook page is attempting to bait people into sharing seemingly innocuous posts in order to get them to then post future potentially more sinister posts. And they might be Russians. I mean, you can't just make this shit up. But okay, back to our story, the cop in the car seat. WFMY stated that this story actually happened in Michigan, as my morning Facebook post indicated, and they provided a link to the actual story. So here we go, and yep, we're on ABC News, and here's our driver and the cop, and they are exactly the same ones in the Facebook picture. And there's a video here that interviews the driver, and yeah, it's exactly the same story. It's actually a pretty cool story. Oh, wow, wait a minute. This happened in 2016. Wow. Wait, 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 wait a sec. Let's hop back to the WFMY story. And what? That story is from February 2020. Okay, wow. Now, this actually is weird. Yet, I guess it kind of makes sense, as I think we now know from what we've seen so far. This is not about the story, is it? Nope. There's something going on here. But what? Well, let's head back to Facebook and let's find the original poster. Okay, so on Facebook, my friend clearly reposted this from someone else whose name is Pant Palette. So we click on that person, and the profile pic is of a young blonde-haired mom and her little laughing baby. Um, Her profile is locked. I can see her followers, and she has quite a few for sure. Uh, What else can we see? Well, not much. She lives in Kulana, and she joined in April 2017, and that's it. All right, so back to the original post, and let's see. She posted this on a page called Grandma Funnies. All right, let's go there. And oh, what a cute little banner picture they have. It's a little cartoon grandma, and she has like a little rolling pin. All right, well, this looks like a fun site. The description says, start your day with some clean fun. Just for laughs, have fun, have a laugh. Group of people who are not prudes. And it goes on. Uh, The group is based in Providence, Rhode Island. And, okay, these posts are exactly the ones I see reposted on my own page to give me those feels, you know? Oh, wait, here's that lady Pant. That's a pretty weird name, isn't it? Pant. Anyways, she's posting that her 97-year-old great-grandma who survived Auschwitz just survived COVID. Man, that's awesome. But wait a minute. 
Why is the nephrometer going off? How can this adorable-looking woman surviving the corona as well as the holocaust give me nefarious vibes? I mean, am I just a cynical bastard? All right, well, let me indulge myself. Uh, let's see, Pant posts her grandma's name. So let's look her up. And yep, there's the story. But wait a second. The story is 100% correct, but it's being reported by her son. No mention of Pant. All right. I'm getting really suspicious of Miss Panty Pants. Um, all right, so we're going to go back to Grandma Funny Page. And we're scrolling, and here's Pant again, talking about her daughter waking up crying in the middle of the night. All right, I'm not reading that. Um, mm -hmm. Here she is again, talking about her sister, who's in the army going through chemo? Uh-huh. Okay, Pant, I'm saying it right here, right now. You're full of shit. And where is Kulna anyways? Oh, it's in Bangladesh. Hmm. Okay, back to the page. Um, there's a couple more people that regularly post on this site. All right, so we're going to move away from uh, Miss Fakey Pants. And now we've got Gloria. All right, her profile has a nice pic of an older lady with a younger lady. Probably her daughter, I'm going to guess. And this profile is locked too. Huh. She joined in 2014, and she's from Tangail. Uh-oh. Want to bet where... Yep. It's in Bangladesh. I, what the heck? All right, I'm going to super scan this post. Uh, there's a poster, Tiana. Uh, lovely three-generation profile picked. Profile locked. No location, but she likes the Kamala Victorian sports team, which is a cricket team from Bangladesh. All right, here's someone named Martha looking bleach blonde with her similarly bleach blonde friend or maybe sister. No profile info, except she has 4,825 friends, and she has a sports interest, Jamal Buyan, who I don't even need to look up, but I will, and he is a Bangladeshi soccer player. Okay, wow, this is pretty weird, at least to me. Um, why are these seemingly white middle-class Americans living in Bangladesh with thousands of seemingly Bangladeshi friends? Am I missing a recent migration trend here? All right, well, we're going to go back to Grandma's Funnies because I also noticed something else during that little lightning scan, and it's that people are actually replying to their posts, and I suspect that these are real people. Okay, so let's try to find one. Um, all right, here's a lady named Melissa. She has an open profile, and oh, yeah, for sure, this is definitely an actual person. Oh, geez. There's way too much personal info on here. Uh, Melissa, you might want to make your profile private. And yeah, there's lots of actual real people posting replies and actually doing their own posts. All right, this is really weird. I'm going to do one last scan of this group. I want to test the professor's theory. Oh, my. Oh, geez. All right, I think I have diabetes. This group is just as sickly sweet as it seems. There's no gotcha posts claiming that Israeli lasers from space are killing our cows. This is just as harmless as it seems. Stupid memes, some of them pretty funny actually, and these little heartwarming anecdotes. So no, my dear professor, I can't validate your theory, except that yeah, these are designed to be reposted. But why? What is going on in Bangladesh? All right, I'm going back to Martha. I used air quotes there because, well, she's the one with over 4,000 followers. And, you know, most of uh, those people appear to be legitimate people from South Asia. And we're just going to pick one. Amir Khan, come on down. 
And it looks like Mr. Khan is a cop with the Bangladesh police. Oh, he's very fashionable. Lots of pictures, lots of posts. Yeah, this guy is real for sure. And he's got almost 3,000 followers? Wow. All right, let's see. He's got an Instagram page and, oh, not that many followers there. Uh, Back on his Facebook page. Now, this is interesting. Every one of his followers also seem to be collecting followers. <laughs> one of his followers here says he works at a place called Follow by 55,632, and he also works at Facebook VIP account copyright official. All right, I've really seen enough. Um, time for my theory. This is all about being an influencer. I'm sure you guessed that by now, or maybe you even knew that, but now I just want to see something. I'm going to test my theory. Let's see what the interweb has to say. So here's my search question. Why do people in Bangladesh have so many Facebook followers? And the first response is a story from PRI, Public Radio International, and this is from 2016, and the title is, Where do Facebook likes come from? Often, it's Bangladesh. Wow, you you can't get more on target than that. I mean, geez, I wish I could get paid for Googling and getting the first result to be exactly right. All right, anyways. All right, so this story is an interview with a Garrett Bradley, who's a filmmaker, and she did a short documentary called Like. And here's that documentary. So both the interview and the documentary are about 10 minutes, and I'm going to listen, so take a break. Well... That was definitely worth a listen and a watch because what I found out here is the claim that the pay-per-like market is a $200 million industry and that upwards of 40% of these paid-for likes come from one single city in Bangladesh. Now, this isn't necessarily news. I mean, we did hear about this years ago and I think most people might actually remember that you could buy likes. In fact, Facebook tried shutting that down, and then they implemented their own system of boosting, which of course just ensures that this artificial inflating of popularity brings the revenue to Facebook and not to the independent person in Bangladesh. And by the way, in this documentary, the people doing this work considered themselves to be wholly legitimate. And in fact, they call themselves digital marketers, IT professionals. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. I mean, it was really, really interesting. So I guess the question is, does this prove the theory? Well, I think what it does do is it shows that an open Facebook group exists to spread innocuous content to gain followers. And so the next theory would be that a person with many followers would be more valuable as an influencer to a company who then may pay them to promote a product or maybe... Maybe it's simply an end in and of itself to show a company that pays to like pages that a person has substantial followers, kind of like a resume. I mean, look, I'm not going to go any further here because I really think I found what I'm looking for. And we didn't find a sinister Russian plot here. No, we just found seemingly average young people from a region of the world who are using the market to make a buck. And they're doing it at the expense of spreading stupid stories and memes to unsuspecting people. The person that shared the cop child seat story on my Facebook page didn't do any harm inherently. They just helped to spread a story that got the author more likes. Oh, and remember our friend Pant, the author? 
Well, it turns out she, or maybe he, also shared the other story that WFMY covered, you know, about the cop saving the injured dog. That story, word for word true, except for being five years old, was posted five days ago and already has over 7,000 likes. A simple fact check that took me under one minute showed me that something was wrong, and it was. But is there harm? I mean, on the surface, no, but it does raise a question. I mean, this popped up on my radar because there was something about that post that I knew was fake. I knew that there was something underhanded going on. I just didn't know what. Now, in this case, it's just the consumer being manipulated to make someone else money. Really nothing new there, just a different tactic. But again, there's a question here. If the average user can be so easily guided into acting without being aware of the actual underlying motivation at work, what else is possible? The stories that get shared on social media are not all so harmless and cute. The motives of the author might not just be to make some coin. Now, I'm not going to go off and hypothesize here because I think we see the possibilities. The point is, my friends, that we know bias can exist in all that we read. And if we remain unsuspecting, we can become unwitting participants to something that might very well be dangerous. And I think that it's time to step up our collective game. I want to give another example of how we're susceptible to bias without ever being aware of it. And I'm going to switch gears here. The other day, I was listening to this wonderful daily video message by Judge Michael Warren called Save the Republic. He started these short daily video messages on the evening of the Capitol building siege, and they're well worth a listen, as well as his bi-weekly podcast called Patriot Lessons, and you can find them both on patriotweek.org. So anyways, he was doing one of these videos on natural law. And it sparked my interest to do some research. And so I was just doing what I do, reading, looking things up. And then I came upon this quote from Thomas Jefferson, which seemed harmless enough, but two things spiked the nephrometer. Number one, it's a founding father's quote, which you just have to be so damn careful about. I mean, maybe you've seen the quote that says, all tyranny needs to gain a foothold is for the people of good conscience to remain silent. And that's attributed to Thomas Jefferson. And it's just so very prescient of our current political climate, isn't it? I mean, man, armed with that little nugget, I could probably convince someone to wear a platypus hat and go steal some toilet paper from the White House. Except, Jefferson never said it. And the second thing that made me suspicious was the way in which the quote was written. Now, I've been studying Jefferson quite a bit lately, and he's very, very complicated. His letters are so open in some ways, but so guarded in others. I mean, a few of his private letters got out, and he was excoriated, and then he became a little bit more covert in his writings. And so, gleaning his actual meaning sometimes can be tricky. I don't want to get too much into that because I'm still kind of actively researching and learning about his beliefs, but suffice it to say that this quote just barely registered on the meter. So I'm actually going to read the quote. 
And again, I'm looking into natural law, which is basically the belief that we have innate rights that are given to us by nature or by the supernatural. And forgive my oversimplification, please, as I just want to get to the quote, which I found on a random website when I was doing my research, and it quoted Jefferson as saying, Man has been subjected by his creator to the moral laws of which his feelings or conscience, as it is sometimes called, are the evidence with which his creator has furnished him. That's the quote. But again, something about this seemed off to me. I wanted to see more, and so I just popped that quote in the browser and searched for it, and then it came upon a book called Stand Strong America by Alex McFarland. And this was an actual scan of the book itself, so I was actually reading a page from the book. And it had that exact same quote with another two sentences added on to it that stated, The moral duties which exist between individual and individual in a state of nature accompany them into a state of society. Their maker, not having released them from those duties, on their forming themselves into a nation. Now, that seems actually a little bit more explanatory, and nothing really strikes me as too amiss, but I'm still uneasy with it. I mean, it just fits too neatly into the defense of natural law as stemming from the supernatural, and if I've learned anything, it's that Jefferson isn't always a neat fit. And so I keep looking, because now I want to find the exact nature of this quote. So I go back and I look again at the search results, and I get to the National Center for Constitutional Studies, which actually rings a bell with me because I scan my bookcase and I have a copy of their little U.S. Constitution book, which is very popular as it's distributed for free. So now I have a reputable source, and here's the quote with an actual citation And it's all within an article about natural law and that natural law is what America is built upon. So this is literally what I'm looking for. So I read the article and when I got to the Jefferson quote, it was a wee bit different. It reads, The moral law to which man has been subjected by his creator and of which his feelings or conscience, as it is sometimes called, are the evidence with which his creator has furnished him. The moral duties which exist between individual and individual in a state of nature accompany them into a state of their society, their maker not having released them from those duties on their forming themselves into a nation. It might not seem apparent at first blush, and I know hearing this might be a bit taxing, but if you just indulge me here, I really would appreciate it. So what's happening here? is that the word order has changed. Man has been subjected by his creator to the moral law becomes the moral law to which man has been subjected by his creator. Again, this may not seem like much, but the nephrometer is dinging for a reason. We have two sources claiming to quote Jefferson. I mean, they're using quotation marks and everything, yet one of them can't be a direct quote. Why? Well, luckily, we have a citation, so we can easily remedy this. And after a bit of digging through the Library of Congress, I find a handwritten copy and a transcript. Now, this quote is actually from a letter that Jefferson wrote to George Washington in 1793, and it's regarding the matter of whether the U.S. should declare their treaties with France void or suspended. It's actually a pretty interesting letter, and it's a whopping 11 pages long. It's basically Jefferson responding as to what to do with France since they just moved from being a monarchy to being a republic. 
So Jefferson gets philosophical and starts talking about the law of nations to which he believes the moral law of our nature is what is of concern here. And those are his words, moral law of our nature. And he capitalizes moral. He then goes on to say that the moral law to which man has been subjected by his creator, again, he capitalizes moral, but also man, but not creator. There's two things to note here. The first is that in the 18th century, capitalization varied widely and there was no set convention like we have today. It was very much up to the author and their whim or even their penmanship. And there's much to debate on this, so I'm not going to make any definitive claims. But what I will say is that from what I've seen, there is consistency and patterns in Jefferson's use of capitals. For example, if it's something specific, it's a capital. And if it's something general, it's not. Regardless, the point here is that we have the source material now, the actual letter. And this is what it capitalizes in our extended quote, moral, man, and conscience. And what is not capitalized is creator and maker. But in the quotes from that random website, the McFarland book, and from the National Center for Constitutional Studies article, they actually all reverse the capitalization. Man, moral, and conscience are now lowercase, and creator and maker are now capitalized. And we also know, after seeing the actual letter, that McFarland actually changed the quote or he used one that was already changed. Again, what's being done here is subtle. McFarland states that man has been subjected by his creator to the moral law, instead of the moral law to which man has been subjected. He has de-emphasized man and moral law and emphasized creator while also changing the ordering to further shift the emphasis to his creator. <laughs> I mean, I get that this may seem trivial, just like a feel-good story about a good cop. But again, I want to consider possible underlying motivation. Why change the ordering? Why change capitals? Why post a story from five years ago? I mean, could it serve a purpose? Remember I said I had a copy of the U.S. Constitution from that National Center for Constitutional Studies? Well, I want to refer to that now. I've used this little booklet for years. It's a great reference for the Constitution. It's all there, and as it states on the title page, this Constitution was proofed word for word against the original. It is identical in spelling, capitalization, and punctuation in accordance with the one produced by President Thomas Jefferson. So. Obviously, they know how to do scholarly work, and yet on their website, they have an article quoting that same president violating that very standardized rule of transcription. So again, I ask, why? Well, like we learn from our Bangladeshi friends, we have to learn about the people to understand the motivation. So, let's see who they are. And Alex McFarland is the Director for Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. And this is from his own biography, which states that he is world-renowned in Christian apologetics, which means he is one who explains and rationally defends faith. 
And if we move on to the National Center for Constitutional Studies, we see that, unbeknownst to me until right now, that they are very religious in nature and that this appears to drive their entire mission from their inception by their founder, Cleon Skusin, who was, well, a very colorful individual who you should absolutely look into. And so, this all does sound a bit nefarious, and the nefarometer is rarely wrong. I mean, the best case scenario here is that these two sources have some inherent bias, and they did some sloppy research and or translating. Worst case scenario is that they took a direct quote and purposely manipulated it to strengthen their cause. Now, I'm not making any claims here or espousing any kind of conspiracy. I'm just pointing out these apparent biases. Biases which are so subtle and so hidden, and yet we're subjected to them. And so, at the end of the day, what is our dear gentle reader to do? Simply not trust a bloody thing that's written anymore? Distrust every single thing because someone somewhere is trying to force their own sinister purposes upon us? Because what are we? Just unsuspecting, naive creatures who can't be bothered to see if our fragile little minds are being manipulated? Have we forgotten how to think for ourselves? Of course not. We are capable of being reasonable. Aren't we? This has been Mike Gerard.